You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Well, Psalm 126 is a part of a special set of songs, the Psalms of Ascent. If you don't know about the Psalms of Ascent, these are special songs that are sang uh, traditionally, even up to today, by Jewish families. And uh, in reality, a lot of the Psalms that we sing and the songs that we sing that prepare us for worship, songs that are, or psalms that are read even uh, for call to worship, a lot of times come from the Psalms of Ascent. It's this collection of psalms that extends from Psalm 120 over to Psalm 134. 15 specific songs that are meant to call us, even our hearts, uh, to ascend up toward the Lord and, and to move us from our circumstances up to worshiping God and to remembering Him. I have been looking at these Psalms and um, I'm just so glad to even be able to land here on today. I feel uh, renewed. I feel restored. I feel rejuvenated. I feel, I feel good today. And uh, my hope and my prayer is that this psalm and the meditation of my heart and the time that we'll spend looking at Psalm 126 will be a gift to us uh, collectively in the way it's been a gift to me. Psalm 126 is part of this psalm of ascent, and uh, I'll just give you some background so that you understand this and you can kind of picture some of it. The word ascent describes this upward movement, right? Uh, we know what it means to ascend uh, to a place or, or to go up a hill, to climb a stairway uh, or whatnot. During the time of the temple, the priests would sing the Psalms of Ascent in uh, their service to God. And, and they would do so even, uh, it says that the Levites uh, in, in one of the first oral or written traditions of the Jewish tradition, it actually says that the Levites would stand on these 15 steps that had the 15 Psalms of Ascent uh, written on them. They would stand there with their musical instruments and they would play and they would sing these psalms. These psalms are special. In addition to the temple, you've got to think about the, uh, the Jewish families who would uh, sing them on their pilgrimage from various places in the surrounding uh, regions up towards Jerusalem, Jerusalem being on the northern end of the regions that they occupied. And they would sing these songs as they traveled the two to three days journey on their way up for a feast three times a year, for various times of celebration, uh, in times of remembrance. They would come into the holy city and they would sing these psalms. Like most of the psalms, they speak to trial and they also speak to triumph. These speak about our troubles and, and, and the times that we ought to be rejoicing for the way in which God restores and God has restored. Psalm 126 was saying for rejoicing during the time of triumph because Israel had been restored to their place um, as God's people. It's uh, a psalm that has to do with the triumph of Israel's restoration and in anticipation of the full and the final restoration of the people of God. As it begins, it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes to Zion. Now, to understand Zion, you got to understand that Zion is special. 
Zion is one of those words that is all over the scriptures. And sometimes we Christians can miss this because we're not as connected to our Jewish heritage. But Zion is so special. I mean, at a very basic level, Zion is a symbol for Jerusalem. Jerusalem being that holy city. But to get beneath the surface and to really get a good grasp on this, we've got to go much beyond geography. It's got to go much beyond just a location. We've got to see the significance that Jerusalem itself represents what? The place where God dwells with his people. It's the city of God. It's where the people of God dwell with God under the rule and the reign of God. And so when it says that this was written in verse number one, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, this is, this is much more than about just a place. And it's, it's, it's about a people. And it's much more than just about a people. It's about a person. It's about God himself. Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God. We don't know for sure the author or the specific time in which this psalm was written. We don't know exactly who wrote it. I mean, if it was David, I think it'd be listed there because you've got uh, various psalms that specifically tell us that uh, it was a psalm of ascent by David. Psalm 122 and Psalm 124, right? You can go on and you see uh, the, the psalm of Solomon in Psalm 127 that we have the author there, but in Psalm 126, all we see is a song or a psalm of a sense. So we don't know exactly who it was and at what time it was. But what we do know is that this is written after a time that the people of God had suffered and God restored them. After a time of their, their exile, after a time that they had been in danger and now they're back in safety in the city of God. That's what we do know. And so just like that, just in an instant, God had delivered them. God had brought them out of slavery. It brought them back to restoration. And what seemed to be this endless cycle of suffering, this endless cycle of being in a place that uh, you just, you can't, you, you can't get outside of your trouble and you've got oppression that's coming from the outside world. God delivered them from it and it was over in an instant. That's the context that's the place, that's the heartbeat of Psalm 126. This is a much needed reminder for us in a time like the time that we live in, right? This week specifically, I think, uh, as we think about what uh, we hear of uh, going backward in some ways as it relates to the pandemic. And so as we look at the Word, to God, uh, Word of God together, I want us today to think about and to see together how God can bring us and has brought us through and brings us from tears to joy. Let's read the word of God together and then we'll pray and we'll dive in. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We're glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm of a sense that reminds us of your restoration. I pray, God, 
uh, that you would meet us in your word. I, I pray and ask you, Lord, that you would just illuminate our minds to understand this and to get a good picture of what is being celebrated and rejoiced over here and even what is being longed for and looked forward to. And I pray, God, that you would renew and restore our faith, that you would strengthen us today and that this would be used, God, for the furtherance of your mission as we lay our lives down as living sacrifices to say, use us. Here we are, God. Send us and we will go. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Psalm 126, you've just read the whole thing in, in six verses. It's very short. It has two kind of basic stanzas, right? We got, And that's how we're going to split it up today. It's got two main ideas that call us to two things. The first thing that it's calling us to is to rejoice in the ways in which God has helped us in the past. To rejoice in the ways in which God has helped you in the past. To look back on those things and rejoice in those things. And secondly, to trust Him to do it again. To look back on what God has done in the past and to trust God to do it again. That's our two main points and that's how we'll look at this psalm. There's no uh, fancy outline, I would say. There's a lot of repetition in here. It's just emphasizing some of the same things. And I would even say there is somewhat of a, a central truth or a central point. But I just want us to look at it from those basic uh, ends. Rejoicing in the past and rejoicing as we trust God to do it again. Remember I said we don't know exactly when and what the precise circumstances were that this psalm was written uh, in. We, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know exactly what that time was. And like I said, if it was David, it probably would have been listed like Psalm 122 and 124, 131, 133, and even uh, Solomon in 127. But I can think of at least one other time where it would be fitting that Psalm 126 would have been written. And when the, the words, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Ezra, Ezra in his time, in, in, in writing his book, that, that, that kind of gives a chronology of, of history and the history of Israel at a time. It opens up in Ezra, Ezra chapter 1, and it gives us um, a, a peek into this thought about not reading it, but let's go ahead and read uh, from the book of Ezra. And <clears throat> going the wrong way. I want us to see how God uses. Where's Ezra in my Bible? This is good. Help me, Carlos. Why am I going the wrong way? Losing my train of thought here. This is why it's good that you have your, your top set. Yeah, I was going the right way. So we got Ezra right after First and Second Chronicles. If you are looking for it along with me, you will find First Chronicles and then Second Chronicles, and you'll find the book of Ezra. Don't turn too fast, because then you'll go to Nehemiah, Esther, and Job. All right, so the book of Ezra. In the first four uh, verses, you got this. these words are said. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. 
which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for those whose house is the God that is in Jerusalem. Ezra 1 This is in the year of about 538 B.C. And the Jews had been exiled in Babylon leading up to this time. They were exiled in Babylon for 70 years. 70 years is a long time. Can you imagine what it felt like to to be in exile that long? A lot of people had built families. They had built homes. Many, many people had been born during that time. They were born in exile. It was the only thing that they knew. While we think about even the the circumstances that surround us, I want you to just think about what it would be like for 70 years and how long it would be to be enslaved and oppressed and and in a system where you're in exile and you're there. And, And to be honest, there's just not a lot that makes you wake up every day believing that today might be the day that we get back to the way things were. They're in exile all this time. And after 70 years, the people had come to just accept it. When you think about the pandemic, I want you to realize how uncomfortable you feel and even what it feels like to be hearing this week news to say, basically, we're going backwards into round two. And then I want you to not forget and not lose sight of the fact that we are looking at a period of about just more than 70 days. And I want you to think about what true exile was and being sent into slavery and being sent into bondage and being uh, removed from your own land would be like and what your heart would be like after 70 years. It was in that time that Ezra wrote and then suddenly Cyrus, the new king, made a proclamation that says all the Jews get to go home and you get to have everything restored to you. You get to have all of your goods given back to you. It's at that kind of a time when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. It says we were like those who dream. Pinch me. Wake me up. This can't be real. This is, this, this is like an instant restoration that nobody really anticipated would come at that time. And they wake and it's just Cyrus the king says, I have, I have all the power of the kingdoms of the earth and God has laid it on my heart to restore all the fortunes. I think we could use our sanctified imagination and say that this, is, this, is, this will be a proper song to be, have, have been written during that time. That, that, that God actually led the, the psalmist to write a psalm to say, when that happened, it was like we would never have imagined. When it says like those who dream, it, it just literally more, uh, more pointedly would say, it was like we were dreaming. It was like we must, it, it was our wildest dream. It was something we would not have imagined. That they were put into 
uh, exile and they had been there for so long and they were banished from everything that would have been toward their prosperity and they, they were just sad all the time and then all of a sudden the impossible God makes possible, makes real to them and he restores them. Remember God's mission in the world is that he redeems and he restores. He's restoring the creation back to its created intent. He's restoring the image of God and, 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 and people back to what we had been created for, which was to worship him, right? To enjoy him uh, and to do that forever in an eternally close relationship, not banished from his presence, but, but, but in his presence forevermore. And so when he says that uh, the, the Lord has restored the fortunes of Zion, it's, it's restoring the prosperity and the fortunes of the people of God in the place of God, right? To be with God under his reign and rule. And, and they experienced that in a very literal sense at a time in their lives. And as we'll see, they even looked forward to it. And so he said, we were like those who would dream. And he goes on and says, our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. This is hilarious. There's been times in my life where I've felt that way. In fact, I came to Ventura, if it hasn't been said to you in your company, I came to Ventura after a pretty sad circumstance and a sad time in life. And, and when I got here, it was like, whoa, the Lord just blew my mind with the way in which we were received, our family was, and was loved. The feeling that I had, you know, I just recently revisited a blog that I wrote in November 2017 just a few months after we moved here. And, you know, I was reminded of the fact that we didn't come here uh, with, with a lot of anticipation. We kind of came here with our heads hung low. Uh, we came here having had to uh, resign from our previous assignment and not really feeling as though that we had a lot that we could look forward to. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the, the work that we were doing before and our uh, moving away from it, it, for me, it was dream crushing. And so uh, I came here with a, a deep sadness and, and after a period of despair, Jamie would tell you that, that for that summer or spring into summer, I, I was legitimately depressed. I was legit depressed. And I had spent months that way. Coincidentally, today is my birthday. When I look back at July 15, 2017, it was like a day of death. It was the way I felt. And rereading this blog... I remembered something and I, and I just looked at my words from November of 2017. It says, and then we arrived in Ventura. This compassionate group and this sweet community of radically generous people have not stopped loving and caring for us. It, it, was, it was like Zion. It was like all of a sudden we're in a place with people who have been foreign to us and people who had, had, we had not known and people who, uh, you know, we're indebted to forever but did not owe us anything. People who I'm, I'm still speaking to and still thankful for and still grateful for even in this moment. And, and, and God met us. God used you to bring us to a place to say, it doesn't matter what has happened. I have been with you the whole time because I am God, the God who is with you. I am God. Uh, uh, I am Emmanuel. And, 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 and it was in these moments that we came to a place and it just felt like, wow, this is what restoration feels like. 
This is, this is what uh, a, a restored fortune feels like. It doesn't have anything to do with monetary prosperity. That wasn't the lack. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, or houses or land. That wasn't the case. The, the reality was the joy unspeakable of being in a place with people who love God and love one another. That's what every single soul needs. And when we came to Ventura, we absolutely found that in an instant and it hasn't stopped since. And you would know the transitions that our church has gone through and the, the, the replanting and the restoration there. Even a lot of rejoicing. I think back still, not because I love tacos, but I still think about just watching that taco line on September 29th last year after we had our time of rejoicing. We sang new songs, songs that uh, had just been written for that day. And we, we, we had a, a great time of rejoicing with friends and family who all celebrated with us that God was doing a new thing. This is the attitude and this is the place in which we find Psalm 126, a time of rejoicing at the things that God has done. It says that they had their mouths filled with laughter and shouts of joy. Then it goes on and it says at the end of verse two, then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Think about the first people to actually speak about it. It's the outsiders. Then they said among the nations, Speaking at that time, you know, when we're talking about the nation, it's people outside the commonwealth of Israel, the Gentile nations, the unbelievers, people who are outside there. They were the first to preach of God's faithfulness because they saw what he had done that was unspeakable and it was impossible. And it was something that was just so beautiful. He restored the fortunes of Zion, brought the people back. This happened multiple times in the lives of the people of God, in the lives of Israel, and it still happens in the lives of the people of God. And I have a question for you. When was the last time you rejoiced over thinking about the way in which God has helped you? The way in which he's restored, the way in which he's delivered you. I know that he's delivered you. I know that he has helped you. There's not a breath in your lungs that you don't have. Even the breathing, the breathing that you do right now that you don't even think about, that is the grace of God to you. When was the last time you just thought about it? Yesterday, I was walking the streets. I had to leave out of the office, and I just said, Carlos, I'm going for a walk. I'll be walking around the community, and I'm just walking. I'm walking in the middle of the street, and I'm just praying, and I'm like, God, how is this practical? What is this good for us? What is the word to us? And, and I started thinking, tomorrow I'm turning 38. I have a conversation with my, my wife and she's, she's telling me and my mom just told her about how I used to always tell my mom convincingly, I won't make it to 18 years old. And, and that, 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 that she believed me, right? Because of the context and the place that I was in. And so God, you're giving me new, more, more life. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm waking up in the morning and, I, and my kids are coming to me and, and, and celebrating a, a birthday and they're excited about it. And it's just, I've been married for 19 years and uh, I, I did make it past 18. And, and not just that, but God, you saved me. And I'm just rejoicing over all these things. I'm like, this has been three years and we're in Ventura. I'm walking down these streets. I'm talking to neighbors and I'm um, you know, I'm, I'm greeting business owners and, and knowing and being known in the community. I just say, God, you are so, so, so good. Look at all that you've done. And so just looking on the past and looking on the recent past and even, even uh, further back, it just caused me to remember that's what God wants us to do. That's the heart of a worshiper. That's the heart of a person who can look to circumstances and look to the goodness and the faithfulness of God and turn around and say, God, you are so good. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done.
And that's not all that he calls us to do. He calls us to trust him to do it again. When I was walking down the street, one of the things that I said, and you guys have heard, probably heard me say it before. I, I know I've texted to some of you before. Uh, it's kind of a knee jerk, you know, that I say all the time. I'm like, do it again, Lord, right? And so I'm walking down the street and I'm just saying like, who are these families? Who are the families here on Christmas? Who are the families on San Nicholas? When I turn down Santa Cruz, I text uh, Scheller and Emma, say, are you guys home, right? Knowing that they just moved into that uh, community. So we got a we got an outpost of the kingdom even on that street. And we love the coffee shop here. We love the, the market down there. And so it's just like, I'm walking down and praying for their neighbors, praying that they would engage with them and be able to get to know them. And I'm like, Lord, how are we going to win this city for Jesus? I'm thinking about the fact that, God, you've done a lot and you've done a lot in my life. You've done a lot in our lives, but God, do it again, right? Don't stop. I want you to do it again. And that's where we turn in Psalm 126 when you get to verse four, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Some of your translations say like streams in the desert. And, 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 and you know enough about streams in the desert, you know enough about that to, to be able to say like, oh wow, that's a beautiful picture. But you know, the truth of the matter is, is I think it just, it, it, it needs to have the same significance it had for the people who are uttering these words, who are singing these words, who actually are on an 85 kilometer trek, most of them from the Southern regions down up toward Jerusalem through the Negev. And they see the dry and the parched land that the, the ground is so dry that it cracks wide open and that it's just dust blowing everywhere and it's an absolutely parched place. And then there's this thing, this phenomenon that, you know, with a Doppler, maybe an ABC7 who would have told them, hey, the rain's going to come 60 miles away in the mountainous region and, and it's going to pour down for two, 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 two days. Maybe, maybe they would have been able to predict it at that time. But before the people walking through this desert, there would be times where all of a sudden you're walking through the desert and all you hear are the children cry crying. All you hear uh, is the wind. All you see is the dust, the dust that blows in your eyes and it gets in your mouth and you're just kicking it up and you're singing and you're reciting scripture and, and you're grabbing your kids and you're, you know, you're yelling up for, where's this person, right? It, it, was, it, was, it was one of the journeys when Jesus was a boy, about a 12-year-old boy, that they had, his family had gone up to Jerusalem and they had made that trek. And it says that they got a day's journey away Luke tells us, and they were on their way back and they finally realized he's not even with us. So you got this big, think about it, that, that must be a large crowd of people who's out there in the middle of these deserts. And, and it took them a day to even realize our 12-year-old boy's not with us. And so they went back and after three days they found him in the temple. Well, all that to say, this is what they understand about the Negev and, and, and what it's like walking through this, uh, this channel of desert and this parched land. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the replace of the sound of rushing waters. If I had it my way, I would, I would show you a picture of this, of just what it looks like, that all of a sudden the, the water begins to come and it's, and it's flowing down. And, and where it used to be parched land and dry ground, all cracked up desert, you have just rushing waters that turn into waterfalls, right? And that all of a sudden it was all desert and now you have something that's six miles wide and, and, and a thousand feet deep and it's 25 miles long of a river. This is, for them they would celebrate that because it came out of nowhere. It wasn't raining in the desert. It had rained days before in the mountainous region and that water just rushes down 
down this, 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 uh, this desert and it creates a stream that for them is replenishment. It's restoration. It's refreshment. It's, it's supply from God and God himself. Nobody else could do this. This is the, the heart, right? To say, God, do it again. I want you to do it again, Lord. I want you to restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. You brought us back to our place, but now God, keep doing it. Keep working. We, we don't become complacent and just say, oh, God's done that in the past and oh, he's good. And, and, and we get to a point where we just like, oh yeah, he's going to always do that. We just count our blessings and we're, no, we're the kinds of people who say, Lord, I want you to do it again. Trust God to do it again, to work in the same way that he has. Restore our fortunes, oh Lord, like streams in the Negev. With that same attitude, they go and say, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. There's a certain uh, mindset that, that comes uh, when it's expanded that says, uh, he who goes out weeping, bears, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. There's, a, there's an attitude of, I'm putting in the work. And, 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 and I'm putting in the hard work and, I, and, I'm, and I'm going through the struggle and, and the trial has come and this is a hard thing. But, but what I realize is that it's going to be through this that God will take my tears and he will turn them to joy. That it will be through the sowing that I find the reaping. Right. He says those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping bear the seed for sowing. And she'll come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is language that they would totally understand because they know what it's like to be in this desert region and to be in a place where it doesn't rain all the time. And you don't always have kind of a year round cycle of irrigation and things you can set your watch by and a savings account and a whole bunch of a, uh, some, some, some uh, you know, money put away and a nest egg and, and a paycheck that you can count on that's going to come in a couple weeks that you can turn. You guys get what I'm saying. There's not any of that. It's very dependent on God and his provision in the land which is the hard attitude that we need to still have, even when we do have those other things, another sermon for another time. But here you have this attitude that says, I am going to embrace the difficulty and I'm going to, uh, to even realize that it, by, by sowing in tears, when you sow something, that means that it's a seed that's planted. So, so the weeping and uh, the, the, the bearing of the seed the carrying of the load, the tilling of the ground, the work that goes into the farming, that's what gives and contributes to a heart of rejoicing and joy when you come home with your sheaves, meaning full sacks from the harvest with you. The joy and the rejoicing comes because you go through the trials and you recognize that you're putting in the hard work. God is doing something that you might not be able to see right here, but it has a return that gives glory to him and it rejoices the heart. I think about a story that I read just there was a little bit of a, a, an example of a boy who uh, has seen that his family has run out of food because they've gone through this kind of year cycle. The harvest came, they harvested things, they had the grain, they press it down, they make it into tortillas, they make it into breads, they make it into uh, uh, soups and things of that sort. I mean, the flour is just something that they can use for all kinds of things, right? They're baking with it and they're cooking with it in other ways and so on and so forth. And when the things start to get thin, they go from having two meals a day to having a meal a day to not knowing whether or not they're going to have a meal tomorrow. The boy runs around and he finds a sack and he says, Dad, we can eat. We have a sack. Here's a grain. It's full right beside the farmhouse. And Dad says, we can't use that. We can't do that. That's for next year's harvest. 
The boy doesn't understand that until months come by and the, the rain starts to fall and he just watches his father take this, this grain that was left over that he felt like was enough for us to have and hold on to and to cling to and to be able to enjoy. He, he watches his dad just grab it and toss it out in the field with tears in his face. He just flings it out everywhere. He's weeping because of what? The work, but also just the joy and rejoicing that knowing God has provided the rain again that I and my family might be sustained. Those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Those who sow in tears, they will reap with shouts of joy. The rejoicing that comes, the, 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 the mouth filled with laughter, right? That's the attitude. I've gone through some stuff. I've experienced something and I've seen God deliver in the past and he's still doing that. And so I'm trusting him and saying, do it again, Lord. I want you to do this again, not just for me, but for your glory, God, and my good. And so we praise your name. And, and it's at the end of that, right, that the harvest comes and you got another years of sustenance because you've just taken all of what you had and invested it toward the kingdom. That's really part of the way I want to close this. I want us to think of three ways that we can take this attitude and take this to heart. I've already said the first one, invest everything for the kingdom. Invest everything for the kingdom. I was going to save this for last, but here it is. If we really ask or take inventory of our hearts and take inventory of our resources and the things that we have to steward, our lives, our time, our talent, our treasure, the question that we need to answer is, how much would it cost me to invest everything for the kingdom? How much would it cost you to do that? Is it worth it? How much more time? How much more of your talent? What are the things that you treasure and how can you give those to God? I know I have gone on record and said this multiple times. God don't need your money, but I guarantee he wants your finances, right? He may not call you to walk away from your job, but I know for a fact he wants your career. When you think about how to invest for the kingdom, you've got to bear in mind that Jesus said that the person who preserves his life here will lose it. But it's the person who loses it, who, who gives it away, who, who relinquishes his control of it. But that person is the one who gains it here and in the next life. He talks about a, a harvest of 30, 60, 100 fold. That even when people leave their homes and their houses and their families and their land, they get re-given that mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in the kingdom here on earth and in the future. And so you, you can't lose out there. You got to think about the person who built up a barn and said, man, I've made, I'm a self-made man. I've, I've made so much for myself. But then God says, you fool, your life is required of you tonight. And all that you have is going to be spent by somebody else. God hasn't called us to build, build up storehouses here, to store our riches here where moth can uh, eat it up and rust can do what? Can rot it away and, and robbers can do what? Steal it from us. No, he's called us to take everything, to seek first the kingdom and all of its righteousness and to invest everything in the kingdom and trust that he'll give us everything else that we need. 
That's definitely a call here when we think about those who sow in tears shall reap in shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing. When, when, we, when we think about divesting our lives of every bit of power that we have, every bit of resource that we have, all of our privileges, everything that we have, giving that away for the sake of saying, God, I want you to be glorified. I love you and I love my neighbor. So here is my time, talent, treasure. Use it for your glory. How much would it cost you? Is it worth it? I know for a fact, before I even move on to these others, let me say this. I know for a fact that you can think about times where even coming through that same desert, this is the desert that Abraham, all the way up to jo jo uh, Joshua, where, where that part of your Bible narrative occurs. And you can think about a time when Abraham travels through here and goes up into one of the mountainous regions. And what does he do in Genesis chapter 22? He says, me and the boy are going to go up and worship. And when he says, the Lord God will provide a sacrifice for himself, that's where we get that idea of Jehovah Jireh, God is provider. But the truth is, is what he says is he's going to provide a sacrifice for himself. He goes there and is willing to raise a stake and is ready to sacrifice his son as God has told him to do, to kill him on that hill. Because God, he knows by faith, Hebrews 11 tells us, he knows that even if he kills his son, God is able to restore, to raise him, to resurrect him again. And so Abraham, by faith, goes to the point of getting ready to kill his son. And what happens? God does provide a ram in the bush. But then you fast forward. And there's a time when Jesus is coming in, right? Uh, the, the, the triumphal entry. And people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save, save. And he's entering where? Jerusalem. And this time he's going to a hill. And God the Father is the one, Isaiah 53 tells us, who it pleased him to crush him. God does not relinquish his, his hand. But Jesus went knowing. He had cried to the point of sweat drops of blood saying, is there any other way, God, than night before? And he goes up and he goes where? He goes to the cross and he does so willingly because of the harvest, because of the reward for his suffering. He endured separation from God. He endured uh, uh, being on the cross, being mocked. He endured being there, whipped and beaten on the cross. He, he endured Roman crucifixion and not just being tied there, but nailed to a cross. He endured being speared in the side. He endured being on the cross and giving up the ghost or giving up his spirit to the point where he even had to go and yell out, Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured separation from God so that you and I don't have to, friends. He gave it all. He spent all of his seed. He went out with tears, right? But so that there would be a harvest and a joy and a celebration and a feast that is eternal. We come to the marriage supper of the lamb and we see him as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. The one who has his hands still with the marks that are nail pierced. And we realize that Jesus Christ took on flesh and he took on death and he went to the grave and he did not stay there because God raised him from the dead. And he did that to bring us to the place of eternal rest and eternal Sabbath and eternal restoration and eternal enjoyment and worship and praise and celebration with him. That, friends, is given everything. And I ask you again, how much did it cost? It cost him everything. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? The second two are just very plain. Trust the process. I want you to trust the process and the third one grows out of it. Invest everything or no, sorry, I moved it up. The, the third one is expect and embrace tears. 
We can talk about that later. We've talked about it multiple times, right? We need to just realize that that's going to come. It's going to be a part of uh, our lives. And, and even as we think about the people who were in exile for 70 years in Babylon, God had told them, hey, I want you to trust the process. You know how he said that? In Jeremiah 29, he told them, I want you to have families. I want you to build homes. I want you to seek the prosperity of the city that I've sent you into exile for the sake of its prosperity, because when it prospers, then you will. So he tells them, trust the process. It's going to be hard, but I want you to be there, and I want you to be there for its good. And I want you to even expect that and embrace the fact that it's going to be difficult and that there will be tears. This made me think, <clears throat> I wish there was a way to split, to move these, uh, but, but I hope you could just focus there on the gospel, but then come back here and, and realize this. I, I, I thought about this this week, and I thought to myself, the truth is, I'm so tempted to even just turn to everybody and say, hey, we're not going to meet in 2020. You're off the hook. We're not going to have a, a, a church gathering somewhere publicly on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock with comfortable seats, air conditioning, and uh, coffee and donuts in the back and children's programs. We're not going to do that. Just to go out on the front and just to say it. And you know why I would be saying that? To give you permission to be the church. You remember we said at the end of Colossians, we have been so uh, bamboozled and bewildered, and I'm not talking about the pandemic, I'm talking about for years leading up to this point, that we saw doing church as what God had for us. We saw that as that Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon is where we were. We saw that as the totality of what it meant to be the church. I almost want to just give us permission to say, don't forget about ever going back to the way things were. Now, do you have permission? Do you feel comfortable? Are you ready to go and be the church? What does it mean to be the church? That same one person that I had you praying for since last August. Have you forgotten about them? Do you still pray for them? Who's your plus one? Who's your one more? Who's the individual, your neighbor, your family member, your friend, your colleague, a fellow student or a peer? Who's that individual who you could still call and text and serve and maybe even visit, right? Who's that individual who you could be saying as you walk down the streets and think about your neighbors, God, do it again, Lord. Restore, redeem. I want to win my community for for Jesus. If we would just take and say, I'm not going to be so upset about the fact that we're not meeting and we don't have this and Governor Newsom said that and this person said that and I mean, we're so divided over those things. If we would just take that away and, and realize God's church has never been closed. I know that sounds cliche, but it just absolutely is true. I have evangelized. I have witnessed. I have counseled. I have wept with. I have rejoiced with. I have given. I have received everything in the kingdom, economics, and ethics are still working, all of it. I mean, you got to think about it. Like God is still on the move and God's still doing a new thing. We went walking around the avenue and, and it was like, we went praying together. And, and that's something that we do regularly. We go down there. We still, Carlos and I regularly, we want to go to Donald Raquel. We want to spend our money here. We want to make sure that we get to meet and we know those who are working there and we're buying tacos and so on and so forth. And there's more to come with that. The, the church has not stopped. And even our local church, we're still on the move, but I think we need a paradigm shift. We need our attitudes to change that we would say, you know what? God knows what he's doing and he sent us into exile for this time. But you know what? He told us to not stop and to seek the welfare of the city. And he wants us to be in the city for the city. So since we can't meet on Sundays in the way that we used to, 
since it's maybe not the right decision for us to make, even if another local church has the space to do that and has outdoor opportunities to do that, since we don't have that luxury, what has God called us to? What is the constant? Because I guarantee you, friends, and I'm saying this to you, and I know you've heard it, and I know you wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised of it, but if all we're doing is thinking about how we can meet together in our holy huddles, I'm, I'm not here for that. That's not why God brought us here. That's not the reason why we gather as a church. That's not, that's not the reason why we are the church inventor. That's not why we're replanting a church. That's not why we would push the hard reset button and start over as opposed to just saying, you know what, I'm going to quit while I'm ahead because all we're going to, all, all we would, if, if all we would do is just bring other Christians out of their churches to say, hey, we got a cooler expression of this over here and we do it a little bit of different and so on. That's not what we're about. If we're not all missionaries who are taking on ownership for the mission of God in the place that he sent us in whatever time it is, whether it be in the middle of persecution, in the middle of pandemic, in the middle of all kinds of prejudice and virus, violence, I keep saying that, right? If it, it doesn't matter. If that's the case, if we're not about that, then stop it. What are we doing? We're not playing church. That's not what he's called us to do. And so with an attitude to say, I do take ownership for the mission of God, and I am moving forward, moving the ball forward, and we do want to see the kingdom advance, and God can do that even in the midst of times like this. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to trust the process, and I'm going to expect that it's going to be hard. I'm not going to be looking for it to always be that thing that's peaches and cream, but I'm going to know without a shadow of a doubt that God is good, and so I rejoice in what he's done before, and I look forward to and I trust that he's going to do it again. I say, do it again, Lord. I praise him for that. And I'm asking you, I'm begging you, join us in that. That's what we're doing. That's where we're going. That's what we're about. Okay. Yes. Amen and amen. Lord, do it again. As we sow in tears, as we even weep, and, and maybe what we're, we're, what we're, maybe what we uh, are, are, are lamenting is the, the fact that we had grown cold in our love, God that we had once a burning hot love for you and for our neighbor. And, 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 and we found ourselves to be so complacent with just going through the motions and doing church and playing church and so on and so forth. But God, you've called us to be a people. I pray, God, that you would restore to us like, like streams in the negative. Give us refreshment that is brand spanking new. The, the things that we would just, that would blow our minds, that would fill our mouths with laughter. Help us to look back on the fact that you've done it in our lives before, individually and corporately, God, and help us to look to the future and say, God, do it again. We trust that you will do it again. We love you, Lord. We ask this by faith. We ask you to do it for your glory, God. And, and I pray that you will not let us sleep, not let us rest until our hearts are, co are committed, Lord, to your mission and not just so, so, so satisfied with ease or things that might be comfortable and uh, the plans that we had for our lives. You said in Jeremiah 29, 11, when you sent them into exile, you said, for I know the plans that I have for you to prosper you and not to harm you, but you were sending them into exile, God. You were, it, was, it was during the time you told them, trust the process, God, to expect that it would be hard, but to give it all, give it all for the kingdom. Lord, that's our prayer and it's our heart. I, I pray that you would move even now supernaturally in our, in our, in our local church, that people would, would open up their hands 
that they would open up their calendars, that they would open up their schedules, that they would open up their lives, that they would open up their mouths and declare, God, that we would not wait for the outsiders to be the first who would say, God has done amazing things for them, but that we would just be shouting it loud in the streets, even in the midst of a time where people are full of despair and depressed, God, but that we would declare your goodness among the nations and we would see your glory spread. We pray this by faith. This is our desire in Jesus' name. Amen.